IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week. We review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we review new albums by the 1975 and Wild Pink. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He hopes Tom DeLong reveals the truth about alien life on the Blink-182 reunion tour. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? If there's anything I've learned from this Blink-182 tour announcement, you know, I've learned a lot. You know, th- this is what Blink-182 does for me. It's a very educational experience. I feel as if, you know, with the return of Tom DeLong, IndieCast could probably use its own Matt Skiba character, like the guy who comes along if like one of us is sick or like is on vacation and then yeah. we can just announce, Oh, it's the original indie cast lineup. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I think Chris Deville, we'll get him. <laughs> He'll be our Matt Skiba. I think he could, he could fit the bill for sure with that. We should say for those who don't know, there was a, this is, I, we're going to call this indie news because I think Blink-182 at this point has been grandfathered in to the indie rock canon uh, by millennials. Uh, they announced a reunion tour this week, Tom DeLong, back into the fold. Uh, they kissed and made up, and now they're going to be doing a mammoth world tour that starts next year and goes for like a year. It goes into, right? tw- I mean, it's go- it goes into 2024. I had like such a... I just couldn't believe that I saw... Like what... Blink-182, they, they believe in alien life and they also believe that like touring is going to be feasible in 2024. Well, it will, it, we're going to talk about this in a minute. It will be for this. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, we're going to be talking about, because that's another big story right now, tour cancellations, the viability of uh, bands on the road. I don't think Blink-182 is going to be affected. It, it sounds like, are tickets already on sale for this tour, or are they about to be on sale? I My sense is that there's going to be a huge demand my, for tickets. My understanding is that there's pre-sales happening. Uh, I talked to, I've seen some people in Chicago mention that like Ticketmaster is still doing their, what has been called dynamic ticket pricing, which is, you know, more or less like surge pricing. And some tickets right. are like $800. A, fr- a couple of friends of mine in San Diego were able to get some Blink-182 tickets for Something like one hundred seventy-five dollars, which you know, after hearing that it was like five hundred, it's like, oh, that's that's kind of a good deal to see him in, to, to do the hometown show. But like, Blink One Eighty Two was a legendarily bad live band, <laughs> you know. Like, you're gonna see them in like a hockey arena. Um, it's like three guys. It's gonna be like one of those tours where you have like two guitarists behind the screen at all times, like playing the actual parts. But yeah, I have no doubt that I- this. Sh- show will do massive numbers i mean it is funny to me when we talk about these ticket prices that the that blink 182 and their fan base now have entered like the eagles type uh (laughs) territory of their career you know like when they play what's my age again it's going to be no one loves you when you're 53 (laughs) at this point because they will be about 53 by the end of this tour Uh, because i i know that delong and hoppus are both 50 i don't know how old travis barker is it looks like he's injecting like wolf's blood or something to make him look <laughs> like he did 20 years ago. Um, but, you know, Mark Hoppus, happy for him, you know, uh, recently uh, fighting cancer. Mm-hmm. It seems like he is healthy. I assume if he's signing up for 
an extensive world tour that that he is uh uh feeling much better now which you know we're happy about good for them um I said this earlier, and I do think it's true that, you know, Blink-182, for the longest time, would not be a band that you would ever connect to the indie world, certainly not at their peak, but it does seem like for certainly like the millennial generation and maybe even younger people, that they are like this legacy band now, and a band that has probably influenced in some way you know, the, the current generation of, of, of indie musicians, either directly or indirectly, just because this was a band that was so ubiquitous, you know, for people when they were kids. I have to agree with that in the sense that, like, they're just a band that, they're like one of the last bands that you could experience, like, almost exclusively through MTV or, like, video games. And, you know, Travis Barker's, you know, various, uh, various, uh, forms of celebrity, whether it's like, you know, being part of the Kardashian family and just being kind of this pop punk whisperer. Um, so yeah, Blink-182's influence is certainly, uh, you know, tangible in quote, whatever you want to consider indie rock. And I just see it as like kind of a missed opportunity for me. Like if, uh, every now and again like especially with like you know my chemical romance coming back and blink 182 it i could i could do pretty well for myself if i could fake liking this band more like oh yeah blink 182 like no the self-titled is really their artistic masterpiece which it is you know that's the one where they ripped off jimmy Eat world and explicitly said so but yeah i mean i can't front like i like this band more than i do which is you know, I guess a problem to my bottom line. I mean, are are there any bands like that for you where, you know, it's like you feel like, yeah, you could probably be this like expert because you grew up with them, but like you can't do it honestly. Well, I would make that the angle of my piece. Oh. <laughs> like if someone approached me and said, write about this band, I would say, well, can I write about how I wasn't a fan of them at the moment and maybe I'm trying to reconsider them now? Like, that's what I would say to you if someone comes to you with a Blink-182 pitch. Just be like, well, I don't really like it, but maybe I'll revisit it and I'll see what I think. Yeah. I'm just saying, or maybe like with the My Chemical Romance, like that that would be my uh, advice for that. In terms of Blink-182, I like their singles. I think that they're like a fun band. I, there is a... I, I remember like we talked about this on the show. There was that recent trending uh, topic about uh, Alien Ant Farm, Smooth Criminal. People were pretending like Alien Ant Farm was a good band for about 15 <laughs> minutes recently. And it was really just tied to pre-9-11 nostalgia. You know, this idea of totally frivolous pop culture that when we look back on it, it just seems fun and carefree and a look at a world that seems less stressful than the one that we, that we live in now. And I think there's an element of Blink-182 like that for me. If you see the video for What's My Age Again or all the small things and, you know, they're jackassy guys running around naked. It does seem like, oh, like, why can't there be more things like that? And Blink-182 leaned into that with their tour announcement. They put out a video where uh, there's a bunch of different people saying... I can't wait to watch them come over and over again. And obviously the uh, double entendre there. And I was like, that's really smart because that is total knucklehead vintage Blink-182 humor. And that's what the middle-aged Blink-182 fans are going to want to revisit when they spend 
$800 on a ticket to see this band. Yeah, I mean, if you, l- listen, IndieCast uh, fan, if you if you want to experience like Blink, like a, a world where like Blink 182 never really went away, I, let me introduce you to this city called San Diego, California. Um, like, there's actually been like a mini trend where a lot of bands when they come into town. They'll use Blink-182 as their entrance music. Like, I've seen uh, Joyce Manor do that and also Black Country New Road. Uh, it, it wins the crowd over every single time. Well, and also, San Diego, you got the Padres here coming up big time in the playoffs. I'm jumping on the Padres bandwagon. If, if we can do a quick shift here to SportsCast. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, just a quick uh, segue there. Like, Are you... Are you on the Padres bandwagon? I'm like kind of dabbling in both Phillies and Padres fandom. Um, look, I mean, Padres fandom is like, holy shit, they beat the Dodgers once. Like that was like the game where the Sixers, um, where Allen Ivers, the Allen Iverson Sixers like beat the Lakers in that game one and then just got blown the fuck out of the NBA finals. Like the fact that the Padres didn't get swept, I, I think the Phillies have a better chance, but like San Diego sports is just a, uh, you know, like, I mean, think of, like, the Green Bay Packers and, like, how, um, you know, enmeshed in the community they are and just, like, the complete fucking opposite of that. That's the Padres. Yeah, they have a cool – They have, I like their uniforms and they, they have a cool team. And I don't know. They just – I mean, no one thought they would beat the Mets. They beat the Mets. They seem to be the team that is coming together. In the postseason, there's always like one kind of underachieving team in the regular season, and they hit the postseason and they get hot. Could be the Padres. I don't know. We'll see. We'll find out in our next mini episode of Sportscast. <laughs> in our next episode of IndieCast, I just want to say quick too before we get to the mailbag that you know you, t- you were talking about Blink One Eighty Two tour announcement being the big news of the week. I have to say that as a young Gen Xer, old millennial, or an Xennial, whatever you want to call me. That I was excited by this story that came out this week. Rick Rubin announced that The Strokes recently recorded an album on a mountaintop in Costa Rica. Which I have to say, you know, I like to prejudge Strokes albums based <laughs> on how cocaine the origin story is. And this is maybe the most uh, cocaine the strokes have been since Room on Fire. So I am excited to hear the, the, the mountain top and Costa Rica record from the strokes. But that's me. You know, again, I'm a little bit older. The strokes, I guess, are my Blink 182. They're like my favorite boy band of the turn of the century. It's so funny because, like, when I was working in radio in 2001, when Is This It came out, like, Blink 182 and the strokes, like, you could play Last Night followed by first date or like any of the songs from that era so i think for a lot of people like they're just like classic rock bands um right i'm, I'm excited about you know I, I would like for a strokes album to be good um but like have you seen what rick rubens actually produced in like the past decade it's not good but you know the new abnormal that's a good strokes record and i think if you talk to the strokes heads out there <laughs> that was embraced as like a full-on comeback record uh, so I'm excited. I got to say that I like every Strokes record. I, you know, put on uh, Angles and I'm extremely happy. I like that record a lot. But we'll save that for when that Strokes album comes out. We should get to our mailbag segment here. Thank you all for writing in. It's always great to hear from our listeners. Uh, you can hit us up at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, as I 
said earlier, we have a very timely question this week related to touring and touring cancellations. Uh, I mentioned Animal Collective. They canceled the European tour. Uh, that's one of many cancellations that have happened recently. I just saw this morning before we started uh, recording that Craig Finn mm. canceled part of his Eastern uh, United States tour because a member of his band got COVID. I saw Regina Spector cancel the tour. This is numerous cancellations. Uh, and this question that we have is related to that. It's a good excuse to talk about this. So Ian, you want to read this question? Absolutely. And when we say cancellations, we're not talking about in the way the 1975 album treats it. We're talking about like actual cancellation, but just the, yes. <laughs> so, uh, Steve and Ian, I'm a big fan of the podcast and eternally grateful for you to turning me on to gang of youths. In the past few weeks, all three shows I had tickets for were canceled. Goy, I always love saying Ganga Use that way, in the same way I love saying Jimmy Eat World is Jew. Uh, Car Seat Headrest and The Avalanches. I wasn't ter terribly disappointed with the first two, since I had seen both of them live during the early part of their current tours, but Avalanches really hurt me. They canceled last minute at 2017 Pitchfork Music Festival and canceled their February 2022 show, which was rescheduled and subsequently canceled again a few hours before doors were supposed to open. So this brings up my first question. What are your thoughts on the reason for all the concert cancellations in indie music? Is it COVID-related? Well, Toledo's definitely was. Because touring isn't profitable or just my bad luck? A related question is, what's your opinion on how artists should handle shows when they're under the weather? I saw a big thief earlier this year when Adrienne wasn't feeling very well. She sat in a chair the entire show and they modified their set list to more mellow songs. While diehard Big Thief fans were happy to be bored, I was hoping to hear them perform some of the more upbeat cuts from Dragon New Warm Mountain. I would have loved for the band to tell their fans up front that Adrian was playing Hurt and given us the choice of seeing the band not at full strength, get a refund, or have them reschedule when she came off the IR list. Your thoughts? Thanks in advance for keeping up the excellent work. Bill in Chicago. I'm assuming it's not Billy Corgan. Oh man, that'd be amazing. Uh, it'd be William in Chicago, right? If it was if it was Billy Corgan. Um, thanks for the for the question, Bill. Yeah, this is a very timely issue talking about tour cancellations. Um, and I guess you know we can answer his questions, but then I think we should also maybe talk more big picture stuff with touring. Um, just to answer the second part first, you know, should bands announce that a member is on the injured reserve list or you know not at full strength? <laughs> Uh, to me, that scenario will, could very easily just devolve into a total clusterfuck where, you know, <laughs> if people have the opportunity to ask for a refund because the set wasn't as energetic as they hoped it would be, I mean, that just opens the door for all sorts of, you know, awful people to ask for their money back for the most sort of capricious reasons. I mean, it, it, it would be, I think really hard to regulate. I'll say in the case of big thief that they might've played a set like that anyway, even if Adrienne like wasn't sick on that particular night, you know, I could see them doing a show where they just played metal songs for an hour and a half. I mean, I've seen them do shows like that in the past. So regardless of whether someone is sick, if a band plays a set, that isn't to like what your expectations were or what you would have wanted them to play. I feel like that's just part of the live music experience. You know, you see bands and sometimes they don't play your favorite song or sometimes they structure the set list in a weird way. And, uh, you know, while I understand 
you know, being disappointed by seeing a band. I feel like that's just part of the experience. I mean, what do you think, Ian? Do you think that that's a good idea to announce that uh, you're on the IR list and you know people can back out of the show? I love the idea of like Pitchfork or Stereo Gum turning into ESPN with like, you know, like on Sunday morning before Fantasy uh, pops up talking about how, you know, Big Thief is day to day or like questionable with like a sore throat or something like that. <laughs> You know, um, but, uh, you know, just like like a lot of things these days, after having read Long Road, the new book out uh, written by Stephen Hyden about uh, the career of Pearl Jam. Yeah. Oh, Oh, yeah. That sounds great. That sounds like a fascinating (laughs) book. Yeah. I I thought about the Red Rocks concert now, like uh, where Pearl Jam, correct me if I'm wrong here, um, where Pearl Jam like kind of sat in a circle and just did kind of a, an acoustic, like, surprise sort of. To- like, I just want to make sure I'm not conflating uh, canonical Pearl Jam shows here, right? Well, it, you're, yeah, you're talking about a show I write about in the first chapter. It yes. takes place in 1995. And it's not the whole show. They opened up, like, sitting down, and they played. It wasn't unplugged, but it was definitely mellower. They played a mm-hmm. version of Jeremy, like, where they don't sing the chorus, which <laughs> is something Pearl Jam does from time to time, uh, even now. But uh, yeah, definitely not the crowd-pleasing set that people in the crowd probably wanted or a lot of people in the crowd probably wanted. Yeah, so, uh, you know, they're, they're the festival sets that I see, you know, from Big Thief or a band of a similar ilk. And, you know, when I, when I, I, I love the idea of like a dynamic tour, you know, a dynamic set list, like one where... Um, you know, you might not get the same show in San Diego that you do in Orange County or something along those lines. Um, I think that, you know, there's this, I don't know, like an entitlement almost to this, like, Hey, we need to know if the band is feeling sick. We need to know if big thieves not going to play. I, I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think of the big thief hit and my mind, it fucking escapes me. UFOF. I don't know. What's, what is the big, uh, big thief hit? Well, I don't know. Like maybe he wanted to hear Spud Infinity from the new record. If I, if like, I, if I'm not hearing a 10 minute Spud Infinity, I'm not fucking going to the Big Thief show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, but, I, but again, I, I I get the disappointment of that. I think unless it's an extreme case, like where someone literally can't sing and it totally derails the show, you know, maybe that's an extreme instance. But touring is so difficult right now that I tend to cut bands a little bit of slack for not wanting to cancel if someone is sick. Like if you can perform, you know, you get out there and you do it just because if you cancel a show that you're taking a hit of thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars, if you're a bigger band. So let's just cut these people a little bit of slack. I think it's a hard time to tour right now, which leads to the bigger question here. And, and Bill, talks about this in his first question in his letter, just asking, like, why are people canceling shows? Because we're seeing all these cancellations. And like Bill says, some of it is COVID-related. Some of it is related to just how expensive touring is. And that seems to have been the issue with Animal Collective. Uh, They put out a statement this week about canceling their European tour and just talking about, like, how, because of all the real-world issues happening right now with, you know, supply chain issues, uh, inflation, high gas prices. It's just really expensive to tour to the point where for some acts, like the margins just don't make sense. I mean, you did a story 
on Will Sheff of Ockerville River for Stereo Gum. Didn't he say he's like he's planning to tour Europe knowing that he's going to lose 15 grand? Yeah, it, and this is apparently very common for bands who are touring Europe. It's like you're planting a flag with the hope that you come back and maybe take less of a bath. But he, I mean, he was talking in like terms of $15,000 for losing money in Europe and like also like five to 7000 a pop, like doing the East Coast and West Coast tours. And the, the thing about the Animal Collective announcement is that I almost feel like this is a tipping point where bands are going to start to... I don't know, feel empowered or emboldened to say like, yeah, we're, we're not going to do this shit because even before animal collective, there were, there was a situation with like Santee gold and metronomy, you know, bands that like you might not think of as being on the level of animal collective in terms of cachet, but like they're probably more popular than animal collective. Like those, those two acts really fill seats in a way that like you might not expect, like kind of similar to like the drums or metric. And they were like, yep, yeah, this doesn't make sense for us. Um, so, yeah, it's, like, tough out there for even reliably uh, popular bands. Like, I don't think any of those acts are having problem selling tickets. It's more just the things that you mentioned where uh, it's almost like a mo' money, mo' problem sort of thing where it's, like, Metronomy can't get in the van. Santee Gold can't, you know, get in the van. Animal Collective can't get in the van, van and perform a show that you would expect from a band at that level. So they just say, you know what? Fuck this. Well, I, yeah, I reached out to some musicians that I know this week, just asking them about this because, you know, this is true of all things in social media that the most vocal people are usually the ones who are suffering in some way. You know, like when you see people in the media tweet about how bad the media industry is, it's usually people who have been <laughs> laid off, you know, which is totally understandable that you would feel that things are terrible. Whereas someone who's maybe doing like, okay, isn't going to announce that publicly because you just invite scorn from people. No one wants to hear from the person that's doing okay. So I, I reached out to some people that I know like are doing okay at the moment. And the thing that, you know, that I hear from people is that there's just such a, a bottleneck in the infrastructure of the touring business right now. You know, for instance, if you want to, get a tour bus. You know, there's not a lot of tour buses right now because everyone is on the road. I imagine the same is true of renting a van. Like you talked about getting in the van. Well, you might not even be able to get a van right now because there's just only so many vans out there. And that also extends to, you know, renting gear or hiring a tour manager. You know, there's, there's just so many people on the road and there's only so many resources out there. And it's interesting because like, I, I see people talk about how the tour industry is broken and that we need to rethink tours and music festivals. And I never know what people mean exactly when they say that. Because, I mean, to me, when people say that, it's code for there needs to be a government subsidy. That, the, mm. you know, that we need to be more... I, I think in Sweden, for instance, you can get public funding as like an arts organization. If you want to go on the road, am, am I making that up? Or, I mean, I feel like Sweden does that. Sweden has some form of like, you know, government uh, backing for art. I don't know if it like allows touring, but you know, you read about uh, a lot of artists from Sweden who will talk about like spending like a year in their twenties, like on the dole, so to speak, and making like this really 
uh, profound and like utopian idea of music. I don't know if it does it for touring, but I think you're correct in that. Like, I mean, I've said many, many times like COVID gave us the opportunity to maybe rethink what touring should look like or our expectations. And every road leads to the same thing, which is that, hey, maybe bands shouldn't tour or this idea of full socialism, neither of which seems even remotely plausible. And so I think this is where it gets into this bit of an echo chamber that you're talking about, where it's like, we need to change. And like, I have absolutely no actionable plan for it. Yeah. I mean, the thing with a government subsidy, let's just imagine a scenario where that was possible, which it does not seem possible in America. We don't fund schools enough. We don't fund hospitals enough. We don't fund homeless shelters enough. I don't think Mitch McConnell is going to send money to Animal Collective so that they can tour Europe. (laughs) I just don't see that happening. But let's say it does happen and we have a system where you can apply for a grant and get like $10,000 from the government to offset your expenses when you go on the road. Does that really solve the infrastructure issues that we have. I mean, I feel like if that were to happen, there would just be more people on the road, which would make it even more difficult to book at a club or a theater or to rent a van or to hire a tour manager. And it also doesn't address what I think is a scarcity of the most precious resource of all. And I, people don't talk about this enough in this conversation, but it's the scarcity of the audience. Like, Mm -hmm. I'll just use myself as an example. I live in a decent-sized Midwestern city. And in the past, you know, if I wanted to go see a show, you know, there's multiple shows happening in my town on any given night. But there's usually just, like, one show that I want to go see. It's pretty rare for there to be a conflict. But in the last three or four or five months, I feel like there's been numerous occasions where, like, I'm planning to go see a band. And then I find out, oh, there's this other band that I want to see playing the same night. And I can only go to one. I mean, there have been times where I have seen two shows in one night because one was later and I was able to leave one show early and go to the other one. But most of the time I can't do that. Or it might be a situation where there's like five nights in a row where there's a show I'd want to see. And I just, I can't go to shows five nights in a row. I mean, it's just difficult to do that if you have a life. I mean, you can only go to, you can only see so much live music, even if you're a big live music fan. And I feel like my situation is not at all unique. I would imagine if you live in Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, you know, cities where every band essentially has to visit, like when they go on tour, Mm -hmm. that it's even worse. So what that tells me is that in the audience, there's a situation where even if you want to go see a band you like, you might not be able to do it because of all the music Mm -hmm. that's on the road. So... I don't know. Like, that's a problem that I feel like is solved only when things start to level out a little bit. And I wonder to what degree bands are looking at the situation right now and saying, maybe I'll wait six months, you know, and by then things won't be as hectic as they are now. And I'll have more of a lane to operate in. Yeah, I hope so, because I think the one thing that uh, you know, bands and other artists who typically rely on the road have brought up is that uh, it is still, at least to their knowledge, like the most effective way to grow one's audience in an organic sort of way. So it is an investment, you know, even when you are losing money. That's why bands have been doing it for so long. But 
Um, yeah, I mean, you also have to think of the fact that, like, even in a city like San Diego, where bands don't always go to, like, I think in the span of a week, like, Death Cab, Alex G, and Always are coming to town. And it's like, if you're someone who doesn't have a connection to, you know, uh, ask for list or what have you, like, I mean, to see any of those shows, like, you're probably paying $100 if you're bringing someone with you. So, um, you know, even if you are that dedicated to supporting i mean even these like high level indie rock bands um you know the 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 inflation affects the consumer as well so i don't know i think that it's it's probably the most boring answer possible to say that maybe we just need to like recheck this in a in a in a year or six months to see if bands are still canceling but right now we're just kind of hitting a a, like ahead of things because like you would think animal collective would be a band that after this long would be kind of immune to they would be recession proof. well i i do think that the european tour aspect of it does mitigate that story a little bit if, oh, yeah. if they were canceling you know american tour it'd be a different story but like europe i mean I, like you said like i don't know what their ticket sale situation was but even if they were selling a lot of tickets just because of the way the world is right now it's super expensive to play there i mean it's it's expensive to play there under normal circumstances, and now you have inflation again, high gas prices. Um, so that's just like the real world interceding there. I don't know how you fix that. I will say, I think right now the thing that's that's troubling to me is that it does seem like for up and coming artists, they're really up against the wall even more than usual because of how just oversaturated the tour schedule is. I know, again, I'll use myself as an example that when you're trying to pick what show to go to, cause you only have so much time in your life. I know for me, it was like, well, I want to go to the pavement reunion tour because I don't know if they're ever going to tour again. Whereas another band might come into town that you like, and you're like, well, I could probably see them again, or I have seen them in the past. Do I need to see them this time? You know, I, I think these are the situations, the choices that people are making and it does end up hurting a certain kind of band that doesn't have like the event aspect to what they're doing, you know, like a, like a Mm -hmm. scarcity again, like pavement on the road, they're going to sell out because they haven't done a tour in 12 years or like Bruce Springsteen, he can sell out because he hasn't done a tour in six years and he's in his seventies and he might not tour with the E street band again. Um, So I don't know. It just seems like, we're in a situation where maybe you have to be a reunion tour or something to like get people, you know, to be a lock to get people into, uh, into the show. Yeah. Or maybe like you just wait five years and it's like, I mean, I know always is on the road, but it's like, Hey, we're celebrating the five year anniversary reunion of the always blue rev tour. And then like, you just go straight into that. Market. Yeah. That'll be every tour now. Or it's like, it's the <laughs> seventh anniversary of our third album. We're going to play it in sequence. Yeah. I mean, there might be things like that, or maybe there'll be more package tours, you know, where mm. you see two, I mean, we've already seen a little bit of that, um, where, what was that? Who did spoon just tour with? Interpol. Yes, it's like Spoon and Interpol. You know, that seems like an example of why compete with each other because our fans are of the same demographic. Instead of making people choose between seeing Spoon or Interpol, we'll just tour together. You know, maybe that's going to be something that we see more of. I could see that happening just as another way to get people to come out. And 
and you know, kind of pool your resources. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how this unfolds. I feel bad for artists right now. And I know this is an incomplete solution. This is a very sophisticated issue, but I will say again, if you can buy a record, buy a record. If you can buy merch, buy merch. This idea that I think a lot of music fans had for a long time that, well, I can just go on Spotify and stream music because bands make money on the road. Well, now we're seeing that that's not necessarily true, you know? So you got to put some shekels (laughs) <laughs> you know, in, in people's uh, money can or whatever, you know, contribute. We're all part of the same ecosystem here. We all have to pay our share. And if we don't, then the, the music that we love and the people who make it suffer. I think that's a great segue to talk about the 1975. Okay, well, let's get to our list of topics here. And speaking of struggling indie bands who <laughs> need our support, let's talk about the 1975. Uh to to the delight and the annoyance of, well, I guess I wonder what the split is in our audience of people who want more 1975 talk and those who want less. I don't know. It, it'd be an interesting poll for us to do. Uh, but they have a new album out today. It's called "Being Funny in a Foreign Language." This is the fifth album by the 1975. And uh, I wrote about this album this week. I reviewed it for Uprocks. So you can go check it out after listening to this episode, or you can pause and read what I have to say. Um, I'm curious to get your take on this, Ian, because I felt as I was writing about this record, and by the way, I wrote a positive review of this album, uh, which might surprise some of our listeners. It surprised me, actually, that I wrote a positive review of this record. But I felt like I had your voice in my head a little (laughs) bit as I was writing my review. Because as I was listening to the record, I was like, this is kind of what I was asking for in my review of Notes on a Conditional Form, their last record, which I wrote a very negative review of. I felt, and I still do, that that's a very self-important and bloated record. And at the end of my review, and I'm not the first person to, to say this or the only person to say this, but I was basically issuing a challenge saying, can you make a record that is a tight record where every song is good? Because you've never done that. You tend to make these sprawling records with a lot of filler. And I'm like, can you make a tight record? That seems like a big departure for you. And that's what this record is. And I'll say that I think every track on this record is at least good. And I think some of them are great. Um, But I knew in my mind, I'm like, this does not seem like the record that Ian Cohen would like. (laughs) And And I will say too, and we can have a... I'm curious to get your feelings on where you feel the 1975 are right now. I will say, like, I think this is the most consistent 1975 record, but it also seems the less, uh, like, the least significant. You know, it feels minor in a way, even though I think it's a good record. So I don't know. I I guess am I uh, on the right track here? This does not seem like the record that you would like, is what I'm trying to say. I I really thought when you said that, like you know, you were hearing my voice inside your head that this was like a like a, a callback to our Blink One Eighty Two discussion of like you know like you're quoting I'm mi- I miss you all of a sudden, but that was probably not the case. Um, yeah, with this one, I'm like I, I, I'm very curious about like what the reception of this is. Like, I have really no concept as to like where the 1975 are in terms of like the pecking order 
of you know pop music in general or like alt rock or whatever you want to describe them as but you know when it's funny i maybe this is just like our indie cast telepathy going on but as i was listening to this record or even just seeing the fact that it's like 11 songs um that I'm like, you know what? This is this is the Stephen Hyden album. Like this is this, <laughs> this is this is the, the Stephen. Like this is the album that they're making with him in mind. You know, Maddie Healy is done dropping Algernon Cadwallader and Deftones in his interviews. He's gonna start talking about Chugal. Uh, you know, he has conquered one half of IndieCast, and now. He's just kind of, uh, you know, closing the circle and getting the other one. But Well, he has talked a lot about Paul Simon in interviews. I don't know if you've noticed that. I've not. But he, I think it was the New York Times interview. He brought up Paul Simon like multiple times, well, which I, I, thought was, I thought was interesting. There, there, and there actually is a song on here that reminds me a little of Paul Simon. I think it's Wintering. Wintering, yeah. It has, like, like a Paul we, we hear Vampire it. Weekend, but like, you know, they're just kind of a you know, in the lineage of, uh, of Paul Simon as well, which I, you know, when you like, I think of, um, you know, what I like out of the 1975, which seems to be the exact opposite of like what you're into. Like my favorite song on, uh, the previous album, uh, notes on a conditional form was probably like the fake Jamie XX song with like Cuddy ranks on it, which is like, I think what you would, you know, qualify as filler. It's an instrumental. It is like a one-off thing, but that just to me, uh, exemplifies. I love the bloat. I love the sprawl. I don't think of them as like, I don't know, like, uh, a terminally online in excess so much as like, you know, the smashing pumpkins in a way, like down to the, you know, just dumbfounding interviews and bloated albums and, uh, the, you know, the genre experiments. Um, you know, I like the kind of song that they're doing here. I like the lane they stay in, but like, I need those other lanes. Otherwise, uh, I get the same sort of feeling that I did when listen. like, I like happiness and I like, um, uh, I'm in love with you more than I did as singles. But to me, they just kind of sound like, I don't, like an instant ramen. Like you have the ramen pack, and that you just kind of sprinkle some 1975 flavor on it. Like if you told me it was like One Direction or like Harry Styles trying to make their 1975 style songs, I would probably believe it. Um, so I, I don't, I think you're correct in that in a way it's a sop to people who have kind of gotten tired of their shit. And also it kind of takes away the things that I love about the 1975. So I don't know if this is the sort of album that's going to elevate them in a way uh, that I don't know why this came to mind, but like all that you can't leave behind, like you, like you two's like the epitome of like, Hey, we're done with all that bullshit. This is the rock music you know and love. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the, problem with the record and and i i said this in my review is that this is an album of doubles and triples like there's no home runs on this record and i think like when you talk about enjoying the sprawl it's it's because you like to see the long ball like you you appreciate (laughs) them being a slugger who swings at a lot of pitches and you'll put up with the strikeouts because there's all these home runs that are on the record and i think that would be the defense of a record like notes on a conditional form like for people who like that record they'd be like well yeah there's 
some misfires, but it's just because they're trying a lot of different things, and that's worth it because when they connect, it really works. And I and I can buy into that. I mean, I, I do feel like part of my enjoyment of this record is connected to just being really annoyed by Harry Styles. <laughs> and, and and maybe like I'm trying to will a rivalry here between Maddie Healy and, and Harry Styles because one thing I do appreciate about Maddie Healy is that he is a person who is unafraid of making himself look like a bad person in his lyrics. Like he will cop to unfavorable behavior, sometimes in an obnoxious way. But also, like, on this record, I, I found it endearing just in comparison to Harry Styles, who is basically a Ken doll, you know, on his records. He's always writing, like, songs about him being a good person and being the best boyfriend and being your best friend. And, you know, there's no dark side <laughs> to what he's doing. And I, and I think that as a point of comparison, it just made me think, okay, Maddie Healy, even when he's annoying... At least he's not doing the nice guy act, which I find just to be insufferable with, with Harry Styles. So I think if there can be some sort of like rivalry there, maybe he can be like the Mick Jagger to like the Paul McCartney, you know, and there can be some Beatles and Stones thing going on there. I, 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 I would like to see this come into existence. Uh, so I, I like that aspect of it. I want to follow up on something you just said about, you know, we are just, talking about like the place in the pecking order with the 1975. I do feel like the idea that you have to follow this band, like among casual listeners has really receded and that they are more of like a hardcore fan band at this point. And I guess maybe I'm judging this on like traffic for my record review this week, which was like, kind of anemic like it, it did okay but i just feel like there hasn't been a ton of enthusiasm for this album and maybe i'm totally wrong or maybe it's stronger in england than it is here but i i don't know i it seems significantly less than there was for their previous record i think i have to agree with that like i mean i get a pretty good indication of I don't know, the taste of like what I might consider a 1975 fan base to be at work where, you know, predominantly around people who are, you know, 22 to 30 years old. And like I knew I've had one 1975 conversation in the two years that I've been there. Um, You know, oftentimes it's more like, you know, Taylor Swift or things associated with that. But um, how how fucking ironic would it be if like they are a a critics band now? I mean, I think that they were kind of going for that in a way, like, but I I just don't know, like, whether uh, the previous album, like, I mean, alongside the novel coronavirus, like, kind of stunted their momentum. I, you know, we're going to be talking about Arctic Monkeys next week, and, you know, Arctic Monkeys have, like, legit massive hits, thanks to AM. Um, Like, I wonder if the 1975 are more like Arctic Monkeys or something along those lines and like the biggest pop act like because i mean how do i even how do i even qualify how do i even quantify this shit nowadays like i don't think i've heard a lot of you know chatter around these songs like you said they're singles or or you know doubles or triples you know just as terms of like artistic accomplishments but i also don't think any of these have really even had the impact of you know some of the singles from the previous record like uh the birthday party 
Um, you know, I think the, the I, I haven't heard anywhere near as much chatter around like uh, part of the band as I had around the Pine Grove lyric from the last album, which I think maybe is indicative of their, um, you know, lessened status. So I, I do wonder if this is like a, you know, a least satisfying of all outcomes where in that it's their least interesting or daring album but also not one that pushes them to a higher level of popularity like it just seems like a an album that can be like better than you think but also worse than you think at the same time yeah i mean i i feel like this record is them trying to figure out their mature period like how do we become a mature band because you know i think healy is like 33 or so like early 30s so he's getting to that age like where you're not the young hot phenoms anymore. You are like the mid-career band. And like what does a mature 1975 record sound like? And that's a hard thing to answer because I don't think that making another record like uh, Notes on a Conditional Form would have been the answer either. I think that would have felt like diminishing returns. Uh, you know, it's like how off you can't be the provocateur forever. You know, you have to grow out of that and become something else. But what is that thing? I don't know. I feel like they're still figuring that out. Yeah. And I think that also, um, you know, like it, I, I would maybe be like less concerned about this if they were more prolific. Um, I don't know. Maybe they like do like a back to basics album in twenty. 20- 24 and by back to basics i mean it's like 20 songs in 80 minutes with all sorts of like bizarre genre experiments but i mean look it's not as it's not the worst case scenario in terms of like what they actually did it's just like okay they you know they may they feel a little bit um it it almost reminds me of uh god's favorite customer by uh father john misty where it's just like the low key i'm off social media now here's 10 songs like i know you're kind of sick of my shit so like let's just do this and move on to the next yeah and that's a great record i also feel like that record has uh an emotional element to it that this record maybe doesn't have i mean there's that, that's like a song cycle clearly based on you know his own personal relationship and that album feels unified in a way maybe this record isn't But again, I think it's a good record. I just think it's hilarious that I like it more than you do. That's like the twist ending of our 1975 talk. (laughs) Uh, Let's move on to something else. Let's talk about the other album that we're viewing this week. And it's by one of the true indie cast mascot bands, maybe the indie cast mascot band, Wild Pink. And they have put out their fourth album today. It's called I-L-Y-S-M, short for I Love You So Much. And uh, speaking of a song cycle that is very personal and emotionally overwhelming, this is a record that is inspired by the singer-songwriter of Wild Pink, John Ross, uh, being diagnosed with cancer and confronting that. And it's a record that is really beautiful and also harrowing i think in 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 many respects it it really i think one of the things i really love about this record and i want to talk to you about this because you called this your album of the year Mm -hmm. on twitter this week and you wrote about it for stereo gum i think one of the powerful things about this record is that it does i think really evoke the headspace of someone who is confronting life and death you know there are moments of 
fear on this record. There's moments of grace on this record. Um, it's a heavy one, but it's also really beautiful. If you knew nothing about the backstory, you could just appreciate this as music, I think. Why is this your album of the year, uh, Ian? Because I love this record. I wouldn't go that far. But well, it is your album of the year. Why is it your album of the year so far? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, Wild Pink is a band that I've, like, you know, as you said, I've been very much in the bag for. Um, and, you know, I was sort of worried after A Billion Little Lights that, um, you know, as much as I love that record, that maybe they had kind of reached a dead end. Like, I, I envisioned... Uh, a possibility where they just kind of like do a li- like it's a little more polish, a little more war on drugsy, a little more like it, I could see them making that album to diminishing returns. And the fact that like they made something that this, this uh, that kind of just explodes what they can do. Like I didn't think while pink was capable of being this sonically diverse, but also this like emotionally intense, like um, you know, a lot of, you know, it's sort of, you know, reductive to say that the quote unquote cancer album is like a, it's not like a trope, you know, in, in music, but you know, it's something that happens where like people confront their mortality. Um, but they do this in a way that's like more pretty than heavy. And also I just think of it as this album that evokes this headspace of like, you know, you could, you could, in, you can engage with this album, you know, if you haven't undergone, like, undergone cancer yourself you know it has this very ghostly um dream style logic to it where you're just kind of it almost is like if you've ever been like sick or laid up with like covid or anything where you're kind of separated from real life you can kind of get in the headspace of this record and um it's just ambitious but not overbearing um and, you know, I compared it to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, you know, which I don't know, like I, I've been probably guilty of overselling Wild Pink in the past, but it just made me think of that album in the beginning just because of all the stylistic turns it takes. But when I spend more time with it, it reminds me more if we have to make a Wilco comparison to A Ghost is Born um, in terms of this like kind of eerie beauty that it puts forth. Uh, Hell is Cold, uh, the third song, seems like a pretty obvious nod to, you know, Hell is Chrome. Well, and Um, there's also a song on the record called War on Terror, which to me, you know, because I also compared it to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot when I heard the promo. And, you know, like when you make comparisons like that, I think sometimes people misinterpret it as saying this is as good as Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, which was not what I was saying. I don't think you were saying that either. It's more that... It's Wild Pink making their version of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, a record like that, where it's a band deconstructing what they do, breaking it down, and making it both more expansive and like sparse at the same time, simultaneously. It, it, It seems like those are conflicting ideas, but this is a record that sounds bigger, but it's also, uh, you know, more ghostly. There's a lot more spaces in this music, I think, than is usually on Wild Pink records. Um, it's interesting with this band because, you know, we've talked about Wild Pink all the time. We're we're both Wild Pink boosters. And you don't want to dwell too much on like, well, this band being underappreciated, you know, other people aren't writing about them enough. I mean, there actually have been people who have also stood up for this band and, and, and defended them and, and, and tried to get people into them. Um, I wonder to what degree... John Ross's voice is an issue with this band. I mean, I like his voice, but 
it's such a modest and unassuming sound that I think sometimes people make the mistake of thinking, well, this is just like a pleasant indie rock band. And the intensity of what he's singing about in his songs maybe can get lost because even comparing him to someone like Jeff Tweedy, you know, there's an obvious intensity to what Tweedy is doing in his music, even when there is more of like a laid back feel to it that you don't always get with Wild Pink. It's not always immediately apparent if you're not sitting down with the record and really taking it in. And I just hope people don't just dismiss this as like a pleasant indie rock record because of the guy singing it. Because there's so much more here. There's so much richness in his words and the way that this record is put together sonically. Um, I don't know. I just think that what they're doing, they're so much better than a lot of bands in this lane right now. And uh, I, I feel like they've been superficially judged maybe in some corners. I think you're right about that. And, uh, you know, his voice is, I would say, an acquired taste. I think it effectively uh, does what it's trying to do with this album. You know, and it, it actually, it's even more receded in the mix than it was on A Billion Little Lights. But, you know, I think you talk about something that's like a concern for me. And this is like pure music critic brain here of you know, wondering like whether the hype of a certain cadre of like followers is like working against them. Like, you know, I think of like a band like Symbols Eat Guitars, where like the the um, the narrative around every one of their records at a certain point was like, how come this band hasn't gotten the attention they deserve? And it's like, you know, you hear from like the same five people, <laughs> uh, myself included about it. But um, I also think that like with this band, um, unlike some of the bands that I've done you know stump for before like foxing or uh you know symbols e guitars is that it doesn't have that you know strive to be big that i hear in some of these other bands like i don't want to like i don't envision wild pink playing these huge rooms you know what i mean like i don't think it would enhance the music in any way i just think that you know john ross you know not to be confused with john rossiter the guy from young jesus um uh, he he, may, he like he's going to continue to make albums that follows his muse, um, but I do think just the kind of dismissal of them in a way like it, it, not not even dismissal, but like you know not taking them with the heft that they deserve. I mean, if you can't do that for the album about cancer, I mean, then you know I don't know what's preventing someone from being into this band. Um, and I hate saying, oh, if this record doesn't do it for them, I don't know what will because I said that about you know, the last record as well. And look here, and here we are. Yeah. I, I just feel like they've been miscast a little bit. They get grouped into the emo category because <laughs> I think Ross's voice reminds people of Ben Gibbard. So they get compared to death cab for cutie. Whereas if you talk to John Ross, I don't think he's even listened ever to death cab for cutie. He's very much in, uh, you know, he's into classic rock singer songwriters, Jackson Brown, Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty. Those are the influences that he draws from. And I would invite people to listen to this record in that context, because if you think of those singer songwriters, they are known for writing personal songs and grouping them into a narrative that is satisfying from beginning to end. You know, that's true of late for the sky by Jackson Brown or Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen or, Wildflowers by Tom Petty. And to me, this record is the most successful attempt 
by Ross of making a record like that. A record that you put it on and the first song connects to the last song. And the album feels like a journey that you're on with the person who wrote these songs. And uh, that's the kind of craft that he's aspiring to. And I think he really, he, he, he keeps getting better and better at it. And I think this album is the best example of that. Absolutely. And also, like, I mean, it, when you think about, like, why they're connected with emo, it's like, you know, they started out on Tiny Engines. And, of course, you have, like, people like myself uh, <laughs> hyping right. them up. So maybe I need to, like, do some reverse psychology. Uh, where well, I'm, again, like, uh, <laughs> I think they sound like Death Cab for Cutie in a way by accident. I mean, I, yeah. I think, I, I mean, the Tiny Engines thing is significant, but I think just his voice is, it, it's reminiscent of Ben Gibbard. And that's why people link them to that band. But that's an accidental resemblance. Um, but, you know, if that gets people to listen to that, to uh, Wild Pink, then, then fantastic. But again, I think as a singer-songwriter, what he's doing lyrically and how he connects it to the music, it's a real conversation on this record. You know, I think musically, it really conveys what he's singing about even more than the lyrics. It's such an expressive record. There's a lot to, I think, appreciate with it. It's not my album of the year, but it will likely be in the upper reaches of my year-end list. I think it's a really strong record, and uh, we're encouraging people to listen to it, as we, all, as we do with every Wild Pink record on this show. Also, they're touring with Trace Mountains this fall. That's a big indie cast uh, double bill as well. And that will be a tour I will be seeing. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm going to that show. <laughs> That's going to be great. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? Uh, I should have looked up whether this band's name is pronounced Birds in Row or Birds in Row. Uh, you know, like the British pronunciation. They are European, but this is a French hardcore band, French post-hardcore band. Let me just be very clear about that. There is a difference. Post-hardcore means that the songs are four minutes instead of two. Anyway, their new album is out today. It's called Gris, Gris Klein. I, I don't know. It's probably pronounced like Gris Klein or something like that. But they were on uh, Death Wish Inc. before. They put out a really good album in 2012 and 2018. They put out albums very rarely. Um, and so this new record, they're on a different label. And I think this one is more accessible in a way that doesn't necessarily go into what post-hardcore bands usually do when they want to be more accessible, which is like, you know, bigger melodies or like doing explosions in the sky style instrumentals. Um, it sounds like more dancier in a way like i, I want to say just swaggier without sounding like an asshole maybe it's because they're french i don't know they're sort of like gohira in that they kind of look too pretty to be <laughs> playing the music that they play um but you know this record kind of brings together all the things that if you liked anything on death wish whether we're talking about like touche amore or that extended universe that includes like you know converge or thursday um they're doing it in a way that sounds uh, much more rhythmic and much more engaging uh, than post-hardcore typically is, which is a genre that's very easy to fall into cliche. But this band transcends it. Um, they don't put out albums very frequently. So if you like this one, it'll probably hold you down for the next four years. So Birds in Row, Grease Klein, 
that's my recommendation corner this week. So I'm going to do two quick shout outs before I go to my official recommendation corner choice this week. Uh, Bill Callahan has a new album out today. It's called Reality. It is, of course, really good because he only makes really good records. I did an interview with him this week on Uproxx where he talked about his back catalog going into the smog years as well as a lot of his uh, Bill Callahan, Bill Callahan records. I, I encourage you to check out that interview. It was really great. I also want to say... There's a really cool Brian Eno record out today called Forever and Evermore. It's his first album with vocals since, I think, 2005. Huh. Uh, and a uh, really cool record. I'm, I might end up talking about that more next week. We'll see. Uh, but my official recommendation corner choice this week is a band from Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> Love to rep the Scani bands. This is a band called Disc. It's spelled D-I-S-Q. And this is a band I've been uh, following for a while now. It's interesting because in a way, I feel like they cover the entire history of like late 20th century indie music. They're very versatile. Sometimes they're doing electropop. Sometimes they're doing like Elephant Six type music. Sometimes they'll do like, you know, their take on like a flying nun band from New Zealand, you know, like the like one of those kind of zippy guitar pop bands. Really talented. They can really do a lot of different things. Their new record, I think, is probably my favorite that uh, record that they've done so far. It's called Desperately Imagining Someplace Quiet. Uh, came out earlier this month, and uh, there's just tons of like really great and noisy, chunky, melodic indie rock songs on this record. In a way, it kind of reminds me of like. Black Sea era XTC if they were from the Midwest or like early REM Reckoning era or so but with heavier guitars uh, again just a really engaging and fun record a cool thing about this band is that they have multiple songwriters I believe that there's four different songwriters in this band and I always like bands that do that where you have different singers you have different people uh, you know, kind of forging their own personality in the band. And it just adds, again, to the versatility of this group. They can really do a lot of different things. Uh, they're a pretty exciting band. I mean, they've been prolific. They've put out quite a bit of music already, but I really feel like they're coming along. And again, this is my favorite record that they've done. So again, the band is called Disc. D-I-S-Q is how it's spelled. And uh, the album is called Desperately Imagining Someplace Quiet. This is that 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 is like a quintessential. Like the moment I heard this record drop, I'm like, Steve's gonna love this fucking album. And they're from Wisconsin. I <laughs> and love, they're, especially because they're from Wisconsin. Love to rep Wisco bands. So I'm glad there's another really good Wisconsin band out there. Disc and the Bodines. Those are the two bands I will always rep on this show. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be we'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.